Welcome back to a special joint video and podcast production of Points and Authorities and the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. I, Alameda County Deputy District Attorney Mary Pat Dooley, and Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Jeff Rubin, will be discussing two recent search and seizure cases from the United States Supreme Court, United States v. Byrd and Collins v. Virginia. This video and podcast will qualify for 30 minutes of general MCLE credit. So Jeff, let's begin our show with the Bird case. Can you tell me a little bit about the facts of this case that led to the decision? Happy to do so. You know, I love collaborating with you, Mary Pat, so quite happy to be back here. Thank you, Jeff. Um, in the Bird case, the defendant got his companion, a woman whose last name was Reed, to rent a car from a rental car facility in New Jersey. The defendant remained outside while Reed went inside, filled out the paperwork, and rented the car. Reed agreed to a contract that required her to certify she had a valid driver's license and hadn't committed uh, certain vehicle-related offenses within the past three years. She also agreed to an addendum that restricted who could drive the vehicle. The, de the defendant in this case didn't fall into any of the categories of persons permitted to drive the car. And the contract also said that allowing an unauthorized driver to operate the vehicle would violate the rental agreement and could result in any and all coverage otherwise that being provided by the uh, agreement being voided and made the renter being fully responsible for all loss or damage, including liability to third parties if that's what occurred. So, Jeff, what happened after Reed rented the car? Well, Reed gave the defendant the rental keys and left in the car that she arrived in. Meanwhile, the defendant took control of the rental car, drove to his home, loaded up some uh, personal belongings, including 49 bricks of heroin and some body armor, and headed out for a nice weekend drive towards Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All right, so did the defendant make it to Pittsburgh? No, he did not. While driving in Pennsylvania, the defendant aroused the suspicions of a state trooper. The trooper began following the defendant and eventually pulled him over for the traffic violation of traveling in the left lane for some time without overtaking any vehicles in the right lane, which in Pennsylvania is unlawful. It's a traffic violation. So what happened then? Well, the defendant, uh, after he was stopped, provided the rental agreement to the officer who noticed the defendant was not listed as an additional driver on the rental agreement. The defendant claimed a friend had rented the vehicle. By this time, another trooper had arrived on the scene, and collectively, the two of them believed that under these circumstances, the defendant had no expectation of privacy in the vehicle. Nevertheless, after learning a few things about the defendant's past criminal history, the first trooper asked the defendant for his consent to search the car. The defendant admitted to having a marijuana cigarette, a blunt, in the car and offered to retrieve it for him. But the trooper said, no, that's okay, we'll retrieve it. And they then conducted a non-consensual search of the vehicle, which uncovered the body armor and the 49 bricks of heroin. The defendant ends up getting charged with distribution and possession of heroin. All right, so did the defendant bring a motion to suppress? Of course he did but it was denied in the lower courts on the ground that the defendant lacked a reasonable expectation of privacy in the car since he wasn't listed on the rental agreement. 
The high court took the case up to address the question whether a driver has a reasonable expectation of privacy in a rental car when he or she is not listed as an authorized driver on the rental agreement. This was an issue that has split the federal circuits. And Jeff, actually, what side does the Ninth Circuit fall on? Well, the Ninth Circuit, they came down on the side of finding unauthorized drivers who had permission from the authorized driver to use the car did have a reasonable expectation of privacy. The question ha had not yet been addressed in a California state court. All right, so how did the Supreme Court rule in this case? Well, they said as a general rule, someone in otherwise lawful possession and control of a rental car has a reasonable expectation of privacy in it, even if the rental agreement does not list him or her as an authorized driver. And what was the reasoning of the court? Well, they began by recognizing that a defendant who claims a constitutional violation needs to show that his own Fourth Amendment rights were infringed by the search and seizure, which he's challenging. And that this is shown by assessing whether the person claiming the violation had a legitimate expectation of privacy in the place searched. All right, so Jeff, did the court explain what goes into making this determination? Yes. They said there was not a finite set of circumstances, but really uh, they recognized there are two somewhat overlapping tests. One is the familiar test laid out in the Katz opinion, which looks at whether the person has manifested a subjective expectation of privacy in the object of the, of the search. And second, whether society was willing to recognize that expectation as reasonable. The other test is based on traditional pro traditional property-based concepts, how it, the Fourth Amendment has traditionally been interpreted, like, okay, who owns the space or who possesses it? Although these two concepts are, are used to assess uh, whether a person has a reasonable expect expectation of privacy when they're, they're often linked in some way. So, for example, one of the main rights attaching to property is the right to exclude others. And in the main, one who owns or lawfully possesses or controls property will in all likelihood have a legitimate expectation of privacy by virtue of that right to exclude. So you can see the overlap between these, these two tests to determine uh, reasonable expectation of privacy. Okay, so Jeff, did the court apply those tests to the situation of someone not on the lease, yet who was driving the car? Yes. Um, they began by recognizing that while it's clear that someone who owns and possesses a car almost always has a reasonable expectation of privacy in it, they recognized it's more difficult to define and delineate the legitimate expectations of privacy of someone who doesn't own and possess the car but is just inside of it. They then went on to reject both the prosecution's argument that drivers who are not listed on the rental agreement always lack an expectation of privacy in an automobile, uh, automobile based on a rental company's lack of authorization alone. And they also rejected the defendant's argument that the sole occupant of a rental car always has a reasonable expectation of privacy in it based on mere possession and control. So why did the court reject the prosecution's argument? Because the court saw no reason why the expectation of privacy that comes from lawful possession and control and the uh, attendant right to exclude, why that would differ depending on whether the car in question was rented or privately owned by someone other than the person in uh, current possession of it. 
And why did the court reject the defendant's proposed rule? Because it's clear that wrongful presence at the scene of a search doesn't enable a defendant to object to the legality of the search. I mean, no matter what the degree of possession and control, a car thief would not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a stolen car, just like a burglar wouldn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the place he's burglarizing. The court said if the defendant's position or that particular argument was adopted without qualification, it would wrongly include within its ambit thieves and others who were wrongfully in the location that was searched. But by driving the rental car when the contract did not authorize him to do so, wasn't the defendant wrongfully in possession? Well, what they said, they considered this argument. And they said that driving the rental car was not a crime to start off with. And just because it was being driven outside the scope of the rental agreement, they said that didn't mean the defendant lost all reasonable expectation of privacy. The court concluded that the violation of the rental agreement in, in the case before it was not so different in kind from a more innocuous breach of other provisions of the agreement, like you know, you're not supposed to drive on unpaved roads or you're not supposed to use a cell phone while driving. It, it was the same as those provisions insofar as the provision is concerned with risk allocation between private parties and not with whether one would have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the rental car if, uh, for example, he or she otherwise has lawful possession of and control of the car. Now here is where the argument I think gets a little dubious because you know all these other conditions involve the person who rented the car. There are limitations on the person who rented the car, not someone else entirely different who's in the car. And it's that other person who's in the car whose own expectations are actually at issue. But that's just my commentary, not what the court said. <laughs> It is true that it is not really a crime. It sounded like he obtained the car under false pretenses, though. Why wouldn't that void any reasonable expectation from the start? The government tried to make that, that argument or version of it. They said the defendant should have no greater expectation of privacy than a car thief because he intentionally used a third party as a straw man in a calculated plan to mislead the rental company from the very outset all to aid him ultimately in committing a crime. However, uh, the Supreme Court refused to consider that argument. And why was that? Because the government never raised the argument in the lower court, and because the factual record necessary to decide that issue was lacking. The court said the premise behind the argument was based on an inference that since the defendant knew he could not satisfy the rental company requirements based on his criminal record, he must have used this companion who had uh, no intention of using the car for her own purposes to procure the car for him to transport the heroin to Pittsburgh. But there really wasn't a sufficient factual record to flush out whether or not this was a fair inference. So the court did not address the, the argument at all? Well, they did question whether uh, if this allegation were true, this conduct would constitute a criminal offense in the acquisition of the rental car. And they also question whether, assuming it was not a criminal offense, there would be any reason for Fourth Amendment purposes to distinguish between someone who obtains a vehicle through subterfuge of the type used in this case and someone who just steals the car outright. What they did was they actually remanded the case to the lower courts so that argument and potentially further factual developments on these questions could be considered. So Jeff, was that the only basis for the remand? No, uh, the case was also remanded to allow the lower court to flush out the issue of whether 
assuming the defendant did have an expectation of privacy in the vehicle, the search could nonetheless be justified as a vehicle search based on probable cause to believe evidence of a crime would be present. The court noted that if the troopers had probable cause to believe the, the car contained evidence of a crime when they initiated their search, the troopers may very well have been permitted to conduct a warrantless search of the car in line with the automobile exception. So if a defendant is not authorized to be on the rental agreement, Jeff, should prosecutors do a little more digging into the circumstances and the nature of the agreement? Heck yeah, Mary Pat. Prosecutors should seek out and be attuned to any evidence that the rental car was obtained through the use of fraud, criminal or otherwise. California prosecutors who are facing similar circumstances to that existing in Byrd, i.e. where you have a defendant who either obtained the rental car by false pretenses or who enlisted another to obtain the car knowing the car could not otherwise be rented, prosecutors in those circumstances should consider deriving arguments from the case of People v. Sats. That's a 1998 California appellate case which held a defendant who had obtained a hotel room by intentional fraud didn't have a legitimate expectation of privacy in that room. Also, while the High Court held the terms of the contract at issue in Byrd did not impact the question of whether a defendant had a reasonable expectation of privacy in this case, this does not mean that other contractual language could not, especially if the language made it clear that fraud in obtaining possession vitiated lessee status. Now, I noticed in reading this opinion that the High Court used the term standing as a shorthand for having a reasonable expectation of privacy. Jeff, I thought the use of the word standing was frowned upon. Well, it has been. But the High Court seemed to be okay with reverting back to using that term. In fact, in the next case we're going to be talking about, they used the term standing in that very manner. All right. Well, that's an excellent segue into the other case from the High Court that Jeff and I are going to talk about that was just issued, Collins v. Virginia. So what were the relevant facts in that case? Okay. In Collins, officers in Virginia began looking for a motorcyclist who had twice avoided being cited for traffic violations. He, he, he evaded them. The officers learned that the motorcycle likely was stolen and in the possession of the defendant. After discovering photos on defendant's Facebook profile that featured an orange and black motorcycle parked at the top of the driveway of a house, one of the officers tracked down the address of the house. The officer drove to the address, which turned out to be the residence of defendant's girlfriend, although the defendant actually stayed at the residence a few nights per week, and there was no dispute whether or not defendant had standing. And by, by the way, you know, I'm glad standing's back. It's a lot easier to say than legitimate expectation of privacy. Anyway. I agree. <laughs> All right, so Jeff, what happened after the officer arrived at the house? He parked on the street and saw what appeared to be a motorcycle fitting the description, covered with a white tarp, parked at the same angle and in the same location on the driveway as in the Facebook photograph. The officer walked toward the house, stopped to take a photo of the covered motorcycle from the sidewalk, and then walked onto the residential property and up to the part of the driveway where the motorcycle was parked. So, Jeff, what was the location of the driveway in relation to the house? All right, so the motorcycle was parked in the top part of a driveway that ran alongside the front lawn and up a few yards past the front perimeter of the house. That top portion of the driveway 
was enclosed on two sides by a brick wall about the height of a car and on a third side by the house itself. A side door provided direct access between this partially enclosed section of the driveway and the house. And if you wanted to reach the front door of the house, you would have to walk partway up the driveway, but you would turn before entering the place where it's parked and instead proceed up a, uh, a set of steps leading to the front porch. All right, so did the officer have a warrant? Uh, no, there was no warrant. Okay, so what happened then? Well, in order to investigate further, the officer pulled off the tarp, which revealed a motorcycle matching the one that they had seen. He then ran a search of the license plate and VIN number, which confirmed that the motorcycle was stolen. And after he got this information, the officer took a photo of the bike, put the tarp back on, left the property, and waited for the defendant to arrive at the residence. All right, and did the defendant return? Yes, and when he did, the officer walked up to the front door of the house, knocked on the door, defendant answered, the defendant agreed to speak with the officer. After the officer um, spoke with the defendant, the defendant admitted that the bike was his and that he had bought it without title. The officer at that point arrested him. All right, so did the defendant seek to suppress the bike? Yes. Um, the theory of the defendant was that the officer had trespassed on the curtilage of the house in order to conduct an investigation, and the defendant said this violated the Fourth Amendment. The trial court denied the motion. And by the way, that's curtilage, not cartilage. There's no question that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your cartilage. Okay, thank you. So, Jeff, what happened in the lower courts? Well, the Virginia Court of Appeal assumed the motorcycle was on the curtilage, but concluded the officer's entry and removal of the tarp was lawful, even absent a warrant, because of numerous exigencies. However, the Supreme Court of Virginia affirmed on a different reason. It held that since the officer had probable cause to believe the motorcycle was contraband, the warrantless search was justified under the automobile exception. The High Court took up the case to decide the question of whether or not the automobile exception to the Fourth Amendment permits an officer, uninvited and without a warrant, to enter the curtilage of a home in order to search a vehicle parked on the curtilage. Okay, so Jeff, did the United States Supreme Court find that the automobile exception allowed the officers to conduct that search? No. And why not? Well, they found that the automobile exception could not be stretched as far as the government wanted it stretched. Under the automobile exception, police can search a, a vehicle without having obtained a warrant so long as they have probable cause to do so. The rationale allowing this warrantless search is that the vehicle has a ready mobility and also because of the pervasive regulation of vehicles that are capable of traveling on public highways. However, they said the automobile exception doesn't extend further than the automobile itself. The court said the automobile exception does not allow police to invade any space outside an automobile even if the Fourth Amendment protects that outside space. The automobile exception does not give an officer the right to enter a home or its curtilage to access a vehicle without a warrant under, under that specific exception. All right, so did the Supreme Court here find that the officer had actually entered onto the curtilage? Yes, and since the High Court considers the curtilage to be part of the home itself for Fourth Amendment purposes, 
They said what the officers did was really no different than going inside a home without a warrant to seize a motorcycle parked in the living room. And so, Jeff, what exactly will the Supreme Court consider to be the curtilage of a home? Well, the court considered the curtilage to be a concept easily understood from daily experience. I didn't know about that, but they said it's an area adjacent to the home to which the activity of home life extends and includes the front porch, side garden, and area outside the front window. It's the area immediately surrounding and associated with the home. By way of example, uh, if you consider my head like the home, my nose and ears would be part of the curtilage. So if you entered my nose or ears, it would be like the same if you entered the head itself. All right, thank you for that analogy. And so did the Supreme Court consider the driveway to be part of the curtilage? Yes, and since the officer intruded on the curtilage for the purpose of gathering evidence, they said a warrantless and unjustified search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment occurred. All right, so now in determining the reasonableness of the search, did it make a difference for the court that the officer didn't damage any property in conducting the search? No diff. And could the officer see the tarp-covered motorcycle from the street? Yes, but that also didn't make a difference for the court. The court rejected the notion that because an officer did not observe anything along the way to the motorcycle that he couldn't have seen from the street, that the search was therefore reasonable. The court said the ability to observe inside the curtilage from a lawful vantage point is not the same as the right to enter the curtilage without a warrant for the purposes of conducting a search to obtain information not otherwise accessible. So long as it's curtilage, uh, a parking patio or carport into which an officer can see from the street is entitled to the same protection from trespass and a warrantless search uh, then, as, uh, th then is a fully enclosed garage. In particular, the court said, such ability to observe the protected area did not permit the officer to physically intrude on the curtilage, remove the tarp to reveal the license plate and VIN number, and use that number to confirm uh, that the defendant had committed a crime. All right, so it's clear the court would not allow the search under the automobile exception. But could the search be done under a different exception, like exigent circumstances? The court actually remanded the case back to the lower court to resolve that very question. And what do you think is going to happen on remand? Could the conduct have been justified as exigent circumstances? Well, there is certainly a pretty good argument that it would be justified under that exception. That exception applies when the exigencies of the situation make the needs of law enforcement so compelling that a warrantless search is objectively reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. Now, one type of exigency allowing for a warrantless entry into a home is created by the need to prevent the imminent destruction of evidence or loss of evidence. And as I mentioned earlier, the Virginia Court of Appeal in Collins found numerous exigencies which justified both the entry onto the property and the moving of the tarp to view the motorcycle and record its identification number. So Jeff, what was the reasoning of that court? They noted that the officer had a reasonable belief that the motorcycle could be removed or destroyed as a motorcycle is readily movable. They pointed to the fact the same motorcycle had successfully eluded the police on two previous occasions and could potentially have done so again here, 
Moreover, and by the way, the information I'm about to tell you doesn't come from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court's opinion. It comes from the lower court opinion that I reviewed. The officer had, within that same hour of, of doing the search, spoken with the defendant at the DMV where the defendant had denied owning or knowing anything about the bike or the residence in the picture. Uh, thus, the officer not only knew that the defendant was aware that law enforcement was investigating incidents involving the motorcycle and where they might find it, but even more so, they knew that the defendant had an interest in concealing or destroying evidence in order to uh, perpetrate his lies to law enforcement. In fact, when the officer arrived at the house, he saw that, that someone had placed a tarp over the motorcycle, indicating a possible attempt to conceal it. Well, taken together, the appellate court believed these facts created an exigency which would have allowed the entry onto the property and uh, the removal of the tarp. So, Jeff, let me ask you this. Do you think that the uh, search of the automobile in Collins could have been justified under the hot pursuit exception? Uh, probably not. You know, the hot pursuit exception to the warrant requirement is a type of exigent circumstance, uh, and that uh, is an is a exigency that permits officers to enter premises without a warrant when they're in hot pursuit of a fleeing suspect. That doesn't neatly fit the facts here. However, if the officers had been actively pursuing the defendant, saw him park the motorcycle, it's very likely that the officer's entry onto the curtilage would have been permitted. Indeed, in the Collins case, the High Court suggested that if that had been the case, the search would have been valid as it uh, ended up distinguishing an earlier decision that was relied upon by the prosecution called Scher versus the United States. Now, Scher had, had somewhat similar facts to those existing in Collins, and they distinguished it based in large part on the fact that the search of the car parked in the driveway in Cher took place right after the vehicle was driven on public streets, and that uh, because the officers approached the curtilage of the home only when the driver turned into the garage, and that they searched the vehicle after the driver admitted that it contained contraband. They, they looked at those facts and distinguished them, but it kind of gives you an indication that uh, had there been hot pursuit, it would have justified the entry onto the curtilage. So, Jeff, would the outcome have been different if the motorcycle had been placed on the pathway to the front door that all visitors would have to traverse? Probably not. You know, California prosecutors that have been practicing for a while may be thinking that it does not violate the Fourth Amendment for officers to testify to observations made or to introduce items seized by officers from properties where the officers don't stray from the area that the visitor would normally traverse in getting to the front door. And there are older California decisions that actually support that view and that interpretation. However, ever since 2013, uh, when the United States Supreme Court decided the case of Florida versus Hardinez, whether a warrantless entry, even onto an area of the curtilage that visitors would normally use to approach a home, can violate the Fourth Amendment depending on, in part, on the subjective intent of the officer. In other words, if the only reason for the warrantless entry onto the curtilage is to conduct a search, and no other exception to the warrant requirement applies, the Fourth Amendment will be violated, even if they stayed only on the area of the curtilage leading to like the, the front door or entrance. Now, in Collins, the High Court reiterated that when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, the home is first among equals, and that at the amendment's very core stands the right of a man to retreat into his own home 
and there be free from unreasonable governmental intrusion. So, Jeff, can this language be cited to help defeat a growing trend in appellate opinions to imply that cell phones are entitled to even greater protection than the home? Yes. I mean, well, maybe. In, in Riley versus California, the high court expanded the protection provided to electronic devices, including cell phones, and limited the ability of law enforcement to access such devices without a warrant. Now, in the course of discussing why the additional protection was necessary, the Riley court made certain observations, including that a cell phone search would typically expose to the government far more than the most exhaustive search of a house, since a phone not only contains, in digital form, many sensitive records previously found in the home, it also contains a broad array of private information never found in a home in any form unless the phone's in the home. And since then, several appellate courts in California have glommed onto this language and among other things, use it to support holdings that prohibit or restrict the imposition of probation conditions allowing for electronic searches, even though searches of the home uh, is, uh, would clearly be justified. Uh, they basically treat the cell phone with a greater expectation of privacy in the home. What I say is enough already with this implication that cell phones are entitled to greater protection than the home. It should not be harder to impose a condition of probation allowing searches of the home than it is to impose a condition of probation allowing searches of electronic devices. And every time the defense tries to impose a greater barrier to conducting a search of an electronic device than would be imposed when trying to conduct a search of a house, you can cite the Collins and its emphasis on the primacy of the protections for the home. I will do that but not before thanking you for this joint enterprise between Points and Authorities and IPG. What? Okay, well, you said you wanted to thank me. You haven't thanked me yet. Jeff, thank you. No, Mary Pat, thank you. <laughs>